Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Hello, and welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today, I have a very special guest for you because he is someone who's very important to me, as is his wife, who was on the show last week, Mary Taylor. And this week is her husband, Richard Freeman, who many people, those of you who are in the yoga community will know by reputation. He's one of the more well-known yoga teachers and for good reason. He's uh, really a phenomenal teacher, as is his wife, Mary. And Richard has really gained a strong reputation for having a depth mastery in the yogic texts and the deep philosophical and religious tradition of India around yoga, Hinduism, Buddhism. And for, um, for those people who are wanting to study yoga and really appreciate everything that it has to offer beyond just the physical practice, what is more properly termed asana or sometimes called vinyasa. Richard and Mary both really are the ideal teachers because they teach a very demanding and wonderful physical practice, but they teach so much more than that. They teach chanting of mantras. They teach yama and they always teach and structure their workshops around a particular text and theme. And so I thought that Richard would be a wonderful to have on to really help us expand our notion of what is yoga, because that's something that I'd love more people to appreciate of, is what yoga has to offer beyond just the physical practice. And so in order to do that, we centered our discussion around a very famous text. Perhaps some of you will have heard of, even if it's just by reputation, which is called the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is certainly one of the foundational texts for most Hindu, but it's also a text that I would highly recommend studying for anyone who is interested in yoga. And I would include in that category even if you're totally secular or and you know agnostic or atheist, if you really want to have a deeper understanding of what yoga is, you should read the Bhagavad Gita because that is largely the subject matter of the Gita. Is the protagonist in the book Krishna really expounds many different paths of yoga and talks about what yoga is, what are the various roots or paths of yoga. And I'll just sort of stop there because Richard is far more knowledgeable than myself. And this is really what we go into in our conversation today. We start out with, he gives us some background on his life and how he got into yoga, which is absolutely fascinating and a really cool story. And then he sketches out the Gita for us and sort of the different paths of yoga that Krishna articulates and then we really do a sort of press Richard to explain the theme uh, in light of what it means for contemporary Western practitioners. You know, those of us who aren't Hindus or those of us who might not even be religious. And the Gita really has so much to offer. And as he always does, Richard gives a, a really beautiful and thoughtful 
and interesting explanation. So I will stop there and, and let Richard speak for himself, but I had a lot of fun in this conversation. And for those of you who are interested in yoga or interested in religious studies, philosophy, or really just enjoy deep, more meaningful conversations, I'd strongly encourage you to listen to this talk. It's something that we not only touch on yoga, but well, this is a form of yoga, but we touch on the topic of devotion, what's called bhakti yoga. And, you know, that's something that it's taken me a while to appreciate because it's traditionally associated with what I consider to be the more traditional theistic forms of religion that I recognized and thought that didn't really have any particular value for me. But I've really come to appreciate that that was a superficial understanding in that bhakti yoga has much to offer people of various points of view. That devotion is an important quality to living one's life in a more rich, meaningful, and fulfilling way. And that's true whether you pledge that devotion to a particular God or not, but that devotion is a, a quality that can be cultivated. And if it is cultivated, will enrich the quality of one's life. And so we get to that later in the conversation as well. But I had a lot of fun. Richard is an amazing and brilliant guy. And let me give you a little bit of his background before we segue to our conversation. So Richard Freeman has been a student of yoga since 1968, beginning with one simple sitting posture in the Zen tradition. He spent nine years in Asia studying yoga asana, Sufism, Sanskrit language, and Indian philosophical text, contextualizing them within the turbulent political times of that period in history. In 1974, Richard began working with BKS Iyengar, with whom he studied precise alignment principles, applying them to his own internally rooted experience of the forms. Drawing from this variety of contemplative traditions and from Buddhism, in which he cultivates a deep interest, Richard teaches the Ashtanga Vinyasa method as taught by his principal teacher, the late Sri K. Patabi Joyce of Mysore, India. Richard's metaphorical, often humorous teaching style appeals to students of many backgrounds and nationalities. He teaches workshops and trainings throughout the world and remains an avid student fascinated by the linking points between different traditions and cultures. He is the co-founder with Mary of the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado, and has produced a number of highly regarded yoga audio and video recordings. He is also the author of The Mirror of Yoga and co-author with Mary of The Art of Vinyasa. And with that, I give you my conversation with Richard Freeman. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. It's a privilege to be able to communicate with people. I think that's the, the beauty of this age of technology is we potentially can communicate more and we can communicate better. That's how these things like yoga evolve is through communication. Yeah, absolutely. I'm never cease to be amazed by the power of these technologies. And, you know, I often tell people that's why I have a podcast is it's just an excuse to have meaningful conversations with interesting people. Yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful excuse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and technology is, you know, it's neither good nor bad. It's just a powerful tool. So, you know, you are choosing to use it for uh, good stuff, and that's wonderful. Well, that's my intention anyways. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm truly honored to have you as a teacher, and I'm honored that you joined me on my podcast. So thank you, Richard. Well, Well, thank you. Yeah. So just to give people a little bit of a sense of your background before we dive into today's conversation, you know, I've introduced them briefly to, I've read your bio in the introduction and it'll be on the show notes, but if you just want to give people a a little bit of a sense of your background and what you do. Right. Let's see. I became interested in altered states of consciousness and the beauty of nature in the 60s. And so it all started when I was 12 years old and I read Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And I became quite interested in Emerson, Thoreau, and then Whitman, who were the early American Transcendentalist School. And they were the people who had the first early translations of, you know, the uh, texts on yoga, like the Bhagavad Gita, for example. And then in 19, you know, I don't, like many people in the 60s or the later 60s, I became inspired <laughs> by uh, various things that were happening then. Um, <laughs> Do you care to elaborate on that and how this relate to altered states of consciousness or... You want right. to take a well, pass? <laughs> well, I'll I'll take a pass, and you can. <laughs> every people know people who know know you know, and and I went to college in 1968, you know, and it's there that I actually started to practice yoga from books, and then I was near Chicago, and so I was looking for a teacher, and I found at the Chicago uh, Zen Temple uh, a Roshi from Japan, and he was just brilliant. And of course, you know, in that particular tradition, they only teach one yoga posture, which is sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they do a good job of it. You know, so that was my my first introduction really to how deep the whole subject is. Because sitting there, you know, being interviewed by him, uh, he would, you know, you could walk straight into his eyes forever. And he was good. And so then I was, I was still, you know, totally an eclectic and... I guess it was in 1970, I left college and was on my way to the Zen Mountain Center in California, but I was distracted by the Krishna movement, which was at that time, this is before they started distributing books and magazines, <laughs> so they weren't, they weren't obnoxious, but they were merely into to, you know, chanting and bhakti and you know, running temples. And I found that to be quite fascinating. So I I got into that. And then within a year, their organization became more fundamentalist and, you know, a little bit weird. And so then I went to India uh, the next year, uh, kind of in search of the roots of that tradition. And so that was the beginning of a big adventure for me. And so I did find I lived in Vrindavan for about a year. And there are all kinds of temples and different ashrams and sadhus and yogis in Vrindavan. And then I became a monk, and I traveled throughout India and Southeast Asia for about another year, you know, staying at different ashrams and temples, which was what you were supposed to do as a, as a new sannyasin or a new monk. You're supposed to get a variety of teachings. And then I met a, uh, 
in Bengal, I met a, a man who was from Iran who was interested in uh, yoga, and he invited me to come to Tehran. He said, the people will just love you there. And I thought, huh, because <laughs> I'd been through there by bus, you know, the previous year. And I wasn't impressed because by bus, you always go through the worst neighborhoods in any city. And said, I, I told him I gave him a month and I went there and actually I gave it four years. And it was there that I started to teach Hatha Yoga. And it was there that I was first introduced to Iyengar Yoga. And in India, I'd been introduced to Shivananda Yoga. And it was really there that I, you know, because I was, it was a Muslim country. It was Shia and many, many Sufis I got to know. And I went to many Sufi ashrams, which are actually called Honegas. And they were chanting. And it was yoga. And I wow. <laughs> so it's started to give me a little broader picture of what's going on. And then they had a revolution, and I came back to the States. And at that time, I decided I'm going to completely let go of yoga and just to study and look around. So I uh, did things like I read Krishnamurti, who's a very famous non-dualist. And I started to continue my studies in philosophy, because that was my uh, undergraduate work before I uh, left college. And so I did that, and lo and behold, within uh, less than a year in Boulder, I was teaching yoga again, <laughs> because that, that was my passion. And here I am. Wow. I just want to pause for a moment and say, I thought my life was pretty eclectic and interesting, but no, you win by, by leaps and bounds. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Well, it was like it was like like a dream. Yeah, waking up and after the revolution in Iran and getting out of there, kind of in the middle of it, I was going, "Wow, this has been like a fairy tale to to be there to uh, instruct to teach yoga classes to all kinds of people. You know, extremely wealthy and extremely poor and very devout Muslims and but also Jews and also uh, kind of." Iranian hippies, they were <laughs> thriving. In yeah, those that's days. part of what makes so. your story so intriguing. I mean, it already sounds interesting enough, I think, to someone my age, I'm 36 or, or younger, sort of the whole counterculture movement of the 60s and how people were going to India. But I think in particular, just hearing about this whole idea of the hippie trail, which for those in the audience who don't know, it's sort of, and Richard can correct me on this, but people would go to hmm. Afghanistan and go down through the Khyber Pass and make their way through Pakistan into India and people were going in Iran, you know, and as someone who, you know, was was early in college, like a freshman or sophomore when 9-11 happened, it's just so hard to imagine sort of a hippie scene in Iran or in Afghanistan, you know, it's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating because that part of the world's just changed so much and especially our relationship to that part of the world. Oh, it's changed. Yeah. It, it was not particularly safe even in those days, but it, there was Islamic, radical Islamic fundamentalism had yet, had not yet really appeared. And so uh, if you were respectful, you know, people were happy to invite you into their culture and into their homes. And uh, so it was, for me, my education. That sounds fascinating. How did that shape your view of yoga in terms of when you first went to the East? And you can talk about that from 
going to India for the first time and even also how it evolved in Iran, if that changed your view as well? (laughs) Well, since my first uh, teacher of yoga that I met was a Zen Roshi. And at the time, you know, having read, you know, in the 60s, the Dhammapada was a very important book. And then, of course, uh, I'm just thinking of uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And then, of course, we were reading the Bhagavad Gita (laughs) and all kinds of different things. And, you know, I was solidly of the opinion that these were different linguistic formulas for trying to describe the same amazing, wonderful experience that reality is. And I was always, you know, if you go into any kind of teaching or group or tradition, there's always a point, uh, at least among most of the students, where they become more sectarian and they start to see that their way is the superior way. Although you can have superior understanding or inferior or mediocre understanding within any tradition, but this tendency towards fundamentalism uh, in which you don't have to really inquire anymore or look or think and in which then the ego is just solidified. Uh, That tendency takes over in any tradition. And so uh, one thing I discovered in, well, in India was the, that the fundamentalism that I found that many of the Krishna, Hare Krishnas had, uh, wasn't necessary that there were other practitioners who were extremely open-minded and joyous, and they, they understood metaphor as metaphor rather than as being literal truth. So you see the variety of the traditions of yoga, and then in most of the traditions there would be you know groups of people who are very uh, egotistical and want to just fight with all the other traditions. And then teaching in an Islamic country, of course the same phenomenon appears, And an interesting thing about Iran was the tradition of Sufism. Suf means wool, and a Sufi is like a sadhu who wears wool. And there's these are traditional kind of ascetics who wander around, and they uh, many of them sing (laughs) beautiful poetry, and they they practice uh, like if you've read Rumi, you'll. See what Sufism is about. And if you haven't read Rumi, you should read Rumi. You should read Rumi. And fortunately, it's been translated from Persian. Right. Or else it would <laughs> just be poetry. beautiful script on a page, to me at least. Yeah, which is also nice. You can just st- stare at the script and not seeing any pattern in it. You're, it's like looking at you know a bunch of leaves or something on the ground. <laughs> that could also be a good way to understand. But there's so much of the deeper traditions of yoga and non-dualist schools uh, that were expressed in the Sufi tradition. And then there were, and Rumi and other Sufis would interpret Islam in many, many different deep levels. And so within the Islamic communities, there were actually very profound and deep mystics. They just had to keep a low profile. And this is true all over the world. In most spiritual schools, religious schools, they're people that, uh, you know, they're just nice people who kind of get it. <laughs> and oftentimes, historic, they have to keep a low profile, so as uh, not to upset people. And this is also a, a teaching in the Gita, that if you understand, you know, the, the depth of the spiritual experience, if you understand who you are, who Krishna is, and what this world is, you still don't want to upset the minds of people who don't get it, who aren't having that experience. And so you have to teach and you have to present it very carefully and compassionately. 
And so just like in Buddhism, there's the question of skillful means. How can I communicate this very difficult to describe <laughs> way of being in the world in a way that uh, people actually get, you know, giving them something they can actually do to evolve and then to help others evolve. Right. What you said, Richard, it's a good segue for talking about the Gita because, you know, that's what I really wanted to focus on in, in this conversation. And mm -hmm. perhaps we should start off by um, just giving people a little bit of context. Can you explain what is the Bhagavad Gita? And perhaps you can give them a little context on the Mahabharata as well to situate it. Sure. Yeah. Well, the Bhagavad Gita translates as the song of Bhagavan. And Bhagavan is basically God or the one who possesses all the Bhagas. And Bhagas are all these different powers and auspiciousness and love and uh, there are many mean, meanings of the word. But being who possesses all of that, that's the supreme being. And that is Krishna in the case of the Bhagavad Gita. So this is the song of Krishna. And it uh, appears within the Mahabharata, uh, which is, Bharata is an old word for the, the region that we now call India, or the greater region. And Maha means great. And it's one of the longest books in the world. I don't know if it is the longest books in, in the world, but it's huge storybook. And I have a an English one English translation which without the verses the whole thing with very small font is about nine inches in three volumes nine inches thick and so there's one chapter about two-thirds of the way through the Mahabharata is the Bhagavad Gita and what happens is is that this warrior named Arjuna who's a prince and a, a really nice character he's one of the heroes of the book he and his brothers end up in a very difficult political situation. There's an evil relative of theirs who basically kicked them out of their kingdom and who is a very bad king. And then this bad king has his nephew, who is even worse, who is truly evil. And somehow it's come around where this big battle is unfolding. And Arjuna, at the beginning of the book, finds himself in this incredible dilemma and to understand the depth of his dilemma, you really have to read the Mahabharata, <laughs> or at least read the, the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita carefully, because Arjuna is a very evolved and compassionate person, and he sees the stupidity of just war, and the stupidity of just trying one group trying to get political power over another group by fighting. And so he asks his charioteer, and this is in the days when, you know, people had chariots. And uh, if you were a, you know, a leading prince, you know, commander or warrior, you had a charioteer. And so Arjuna's charioteer was Krishna, who is, of course, the Supreme Lord, and is, in fact, everyone's charioteer. <laughs> because as the book explains, Krishna is actually the intelligence. And we are driving around in the, our bodies, which are like our chariots, and we have all of these difficult crises and situations. and But the f deepest and finest part of our intelligence is just the pure consciousness that we truly are. And so Arjuna's dilemma, his situation, is really our situation. 
And in this particular case, he is trying to point out, you know, the evils of war, that even if they won the kingdom, everything is ruined because so many people have died. And he is exactly right. And one of the points in the Mahabharata is that to try to practice nonviolence according to simple formulas in a situation where there's actually crazy people around uh, who need to be stopped uh, is unethical. And so, and this is a point that, you know, whenever we're talking about the Gita, we have to imagine situations in which even though, say, I'm a yogi who, and I don't like to even hurt bugs, which is true, and yet uh, a situation arises where uh, I have to stop somebody uh, from hurting many, many other people, say a, a terrorist or a psychopath or someone who's truly just hallucinating and you know has strapped himself full of bombs. And there's, I often use the example of taking over the local elementary school <laughs> with everybody's kids in it. And the person is your cousin, but it's your crazy cousin, Barney. You got to stop him. And people think of all the things, well, I'll stop him this way or that way. But we say, oh, no, no, he's on the roof. Oh, no, no, he's, it's going to be, you got 10 seconds. Oh, no, no, here's a, and it's a situation, can you do what a warrior would do, which would be, you know, shoot him or finish him off in some way without putting him outside of your heart? In other words, to do it just for the sake of everyone. And in theory, soldiers and police people are, are placed in this, these dilemmas all the time. And so the Gita chooses this uncomfortable thing to present within Indian culture, which is very largely, you know, it has large monasteries and people who go off to the forest and nonviolence in both uh, Hindu and Buddhist teachings is very big. And so it's, it's a very difficult issue for people. And so you have to respect the book in that you know, it's, it's trying to address this mess. As they say, the, the Bhagavad Gita wasn't taught in a rose garden, taught on a battlefield. So I would like to dive deeper into some of the themes, but I think one important point of the Gita, and sort of, I mentioned this to you before the call, my, my hidden agenda here is I'd really like to help expand people's notion of what yoga is, because in the West, we all just sort of conflate yoga with the physical practice, which we often refer to as asana vinyasa. And in the Gita, Krishna really defines, offers a definition of yoga, and he lays out several paths of yoga. And so can you start to unpack that for us? Sort of what does Krishna teach us in the Gita about what yoga is and what are the prominent paths of yoga? Hmm. Yeah. So Coming out of the problem that Arjuna was having, Krishna first teaches uh, what's called Sankhya Yoga. And this is just the yoga of purely seeing the, seeing things or what they actually are metaphysically. So, so Sankhya is the earliest system of Indian philosophy. It's a pre-Buddhist system. And it has, it's very brilliant. And its axioms are very simple. Is that anything you are experiencing whether it's sensation, feeling, thought patterns, things in the world, structures, all of those things are impermanent. In other words, all of them are made out of other stuff. And that what is of ultimate mystery and concern is the process of just consciousness itself. And so it, 
as it's very simply it says that consciousness the things that you think consciousness are they are it is, consciousness is not because all of those things the forms you think the ideas you think uh your fingernail your body the earth all these things are impermanent and they are creative energy called prakriti and so basically the first teaching is no one here on this battlefield arjuna is going to die ever there's never christians never was there a time when i did not exist nor you nor all of these soldiers here and so and it's a very you know he's dealing with the problem of death straight off and he explains it you know very eloquently that you know one has to hear this and and see you know very closely how the, the mind works how the all of the different objects of the senses are actually not truly objects at all but they're impermanent and then he makes the conclusion therefore arjuna why don't you get up and just do your duty and fight and of course arjuna rejects because logically uh to know that everything is impermanence you know that all beings you know anything that is born is going to die and this is true in the all the way in the past and into the endless future that doesn't tell you how to act specifically with any specific context it's merely the bottom line uh that ultimately you are not this body or this mind and so that is also uh, that type of yoga is something that one doesn't realize without according to the tradition according to the without many 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 lifetimes of uh, practice of other types of yoga and so you don't get the yoga of pure insight of this pure wisdom and so arjuna always comes back well what about this and what about that because he wants to solve specific problems and so the next type of yoga that uh krishna starts to teach is karma yoga and this is the the yoga of action and of course it's a broad term but karma of course when we hear about it we think oh karma is just my you know my destiny and it's you know it's why i'm not rich in this lifetime or it's why i am rich and actually the what is taught in the gita looks much more closely at the principle of action or karma and it starts to reveal that it's actually a creative it's the creative process that we are or i shouldn't say we uh that our subtle mind engages in moment by moment in this way of either making subtle action in the form of making propositions about reality or gross actions in the form of like opening the refrigerator door or eating a bagel or driving down the street or <laughs> all of these things produce an effect and in most cases we it's a mental calculation as to what effect we want and if we don't really understand the nature of karma uh we don't always get the effect we want and so krishna starts to teach the art of karma uh, as a creative process in which even moment by moment the propositions if you have intelligence you can see through how your mind works and you can start to create very beautiful forms and very beautiful art with whatever it is you're doing in this world and so you all of a sudden the creative principle is taken away from our vision of a omnipotent god and it's placed in our own hands that we do have some creative power at least within the realm of our own experience and so a lot of people don't get this about the gita 
And this is develops into the idea of karma yoga. And a beautiful thing about the teaching in the Gita of karma yoga is that because every person in every walk of life uh, within the Hindu system born of a high caste or a privileged caste, or if they're low caste or outcast or no caste, if they learn the, the art of doing karma or doing whatever work they do, not out of uh, a selfish need for uh, accumulating power or possessions, but if they learn to, to work for the benefit of others or for the ecosystem in a simplistic way, that they can actually attain perfection in yoga, which is ultimately a true wisdom and liberation. And so they say for karma always produces jnana or wisdom. And so whatever you do, you get feedback. And then with the feedback, and not, but most people don't really up, you can upgrade your theories about what the situation is, and then you act again, and you get feedback, and then you can keep upgrading or making more subtle and precise your vision of the world. It sounds like science, actually. And in fact, it is an early presentation of the scientific method. So eventually, karma yoga develops to this point of, you know, the ritualistic karmas of, you know, early Hindu religion. And one learns to give up or not be attached to the fruits of the karma, but becomes extremely pleased just by the process or the activity of working itself. And this is considered a state of insight or liberation. And so even if you want to do yoga to go to heaven, that's considered a lower stage of karma yoga practice. Or if I'm giving away, I'm giving to charity so that I can go to heaven, that's considered a lower level of yoga practice. Because you're attached to a particular outcome. Right. And you're basically hallucinating this whole future outcome of where you're going to go to heaven and live on the top of a big skyscraper in Manhattan or something. Trump Tower? And um, <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and have a golden <laughs> toilet, you know. But that isn't real satisfaction. In other words, the satisfaction of just participating without being selfish in the miracle of this creative process of nature of the mind is so much more satisfying than going to heaven and having you know, whatever the, the pleasures of heaven are. And, and so that's the first type of yoga. Well, after the yoga of intelligence or the Sankhya yoga, he starts to get really practical. And this is where the Gita becomes very a beautiful book in that it is really a, then a deconstruction of the kind of fundamentalist, ritual-oriented idea of karma that is very prevalent in different schools of Hinduism and even somewhat in Buddhism. And it's not that those schools are wrong or bad, it's just that there's much more to it, and it's a much more beautiful process. And then it, it keeps evolving, and then the, the next type of yoga that he starts to explain is called yagya, which is, in a sense, the perfection of karma yoga, or the, well, not the perfection of it, but it's the, a profound way of looking at it. And, and yoga means sacrifice. And of course, when we say the word sacrifice, we're thinking of things that are close enough to us that if we give them up, it's like giving up your life for somebody, or giving up something that's of great value to it. So there's a deep sense of fear and emotional attachment when one makes a sacrifice, particularly within the Abrahamic religious tradition. <laughs> and 
even in many other traditions, in early, early, you know, pre-Vedic Iranian Indo-European religion, there was human sacrifice. And then eventually it became a horse sacrifice. And then it kept evolving. And so there was finally like goat sacrifice. And then at a certain point, and I remember Gautama Buddha, you know, the, the Buddha was very clear on this point that all of these ritualistic sacrifices should not involve animals or anyone. And this is a great point of, you know, historically evolution. But that the idea of sacrifice is points or looks at karma or the practice of action much more psychologically in which you go through many steps or what are called vinyasas. <laughs> this is where the root of that word. And a vinyasa sets up a holy space like an altar or a sacred fire. So there's steps to do to make it special. And then in that, you start, you make your offering of something. And of course, when you're first doing sacrifice, as many ancient peoples did, they were sacrificing to the gods to maybe get, you know, better weather or have a good crop or, you know, so that they'll have good offspring or all kinds of things. But it was even on its most uh, elementary level, this approach was at least recognizing that everything is interdependent. And so I think, you know, sacrifices to the gods, which is kind of a, a this polytheistic view that is prior to, you know, what the Gita is talking about, uh, is really a uh, recognition of ecosystems, that there are these deep ecosystems and we have to acknowledge them in order for them to work correctly. And so environmentally, I think uh, they were ahead of us. <laughs> and then gradually the, the idea of sacrifice evolved into the contemplative sacrifice in which that the, the ritual of the sacrifice wasn't so important, but it was what your mind was doing that was more important. And so if you could give up doing sacrifice for your own selfish reasons, just like in karma yoga, then you would start to get knowledge or wisdom. And then any type of formula or wisdom or f formula you would make for the wisdom, you would in turn then have to sacrifice the wisdom itself or the words. And so even if I or you succeed in trying to explain this with good words, what's actually being communicated always slides outside of the, the framework of the words themselves. <laughs> And so you have to, even if you find great words, you have to then give them up, not become attached to them as if they were what the real message is. And so this is really hard even for artists. Say you're a great artist and you, you finally create the Mona Lisa or something and her expression is beautiful. <laughs> it's not really that that is of the value. And so it's this is a... a a famous teaching in the Upanishads and in the Bhagavad Gita, that it is actually the Atman, or the true self, which is what we actually are, which is just pure consciousness, that is the beauty of things that are beautiful, uh, that is the what makes you smile when you, you talk to a friend, it's what's beautiful in a friend, it's what's... And even if you create a great poem or a work of art, if the yoga of sacrifice evolves, you're, you end up letting go of those forms until there's a total enlightenment that occurs. And so in this vision of sacrifice, this is where meditation is beginning, because the Gita describes that you know those who are really practiced, they 
will practice offering the functioning of their senses, which are like, you know, sights and sounds and prana, which are sensations, into the fire of just pure consciousness. And then they go into the pranayama, as part of the uh, vision of sacri, in which you pour the pattern that's throughout your body that it corresponds to your inhaling, which is a sensation pattern. And you, you offer that in sacrifice into the opposite pattern, which is the pattern of exhaling, which is, again, a full body patterning. And you pour them in a sacrificial way, back and forth. And this, has become, this later is revealed in the sixth chapter, where he talks about traditional yoga as the foundation of you know, what we consider yoga practice. And so it's... Uh, anyway, so the result of sacrificial yoga is, again, wisdom, which is, the word is jnana, and wisdom is this insight into the nature of things. And at the end of most of the chapters of the Gita, this is, I think, a brilliant thing. Krishna always points out that when you see the truth or when you experience the truth, you'll see that truth operating in all beings. So it's not just like something that you have, and then you say goodbye to everybody, I'm liberated, see you later, suckers. But you start to see that the deep inner functioning in the heart of every sentient being, not just humans, is the same truth, the same Atman or the same Krishna. So gradually, revealing different types of yoga, Krishna is saying that the essence of all of these, and this is the vocabulary that the Gita works with, the essence of all these is love or bhakti. And that's really this magic of devotion and selfless fascination with the beloved, which is all other beings or the true self of all selves. And then so from the yoga of sacrifice and then wisdom and intelligence, the Gita talks about traditional kind of Ashtanga yoga, which obviously was understood at the time, you know, in which you practice meditation and you take vows. And so he was saying you you go to a place and you, you know, and you go off by yourself and you make sure you have a, a clean space to practice your yoga in and you sit straight. So particularly the the heart, neck, and the head are in a, a straight line, which opens the heart. And you focus the mind and the heart. And you, and so he describes a meditation practice, pranayama practice, and then just like in the eightfold practice that is was taught uh, by Patanjali, um, the was called pratyahara, in which because of your insight, your intelligence, you no longer grasp at sensations, and so you no longer hallucinate separate sense objects into your immediate experience of sensation. So you'll be you know, sensing still smells, sights, sounds, but you want to be fooled uh, by thinking that these, everything is fractured into thousands of separate things, but you'll see it's all interconnected. And then the different states of meditation and samadhi. And they're all described, you know, to the satisfaction of the traditional kind of aesthetic yogi in the Bhagavad Gita. But then Krishna says that the the real, the yogi who really starts to get it is the one who sees me in all beings and sees all beings in me and is therefore filled with uh, faith, devotion, love. And the benefit of that is then you're automatically humble. You're automatically not 
aggressive in your yoga practice. And so if someone has this sense of bhakti, uh, they even let go of the insistence that a lot of traditions have that you become perfect because what overtakes that sense of I, the ego, I have to become perfected so that I disappear or something. Just by the experience of seeing so many other beings and actually liking them, being kind of awestruck by what's going on around you, you you become quite satisfied with things as they are, even if you are not technically liberated, uh, which is a paradox because you're not liberated until you don't care to be liberated. You don't care whether you're liberated or not. Because <laughs> right. you, you, you stop seeking. Yeah, because there's something much sweeter and more satisfying. And that's the bhakti, that's the love, that is the heart Let of me the ask you a question, if I may, about bhakti, because it is such a core theme of the Gita. I mean, he lays out these various paths, but Krishna sort of really seems to suggest that this is where it all leads to, right? This bhakti, this love, this devotion. And the Gita is right. often cited, you know, as really a foundational theistic text for Hinduism. And I think there's no question it is theistic, but I feel that the Gita has so much to offer to people in terms of life lessons, even for those of us who might identify as more agnostic or atheist. And I'm I'm wondering, what can someone who is doesn't necessarily affiliate with organized religion, they might be skeptical of it, they might be agnostic or atheist, Mm -hmm. what are they to make of bhakti yoga. How can bhakti yoga be meaningful to them in their own life within a more modern secular Mm -hmm. worldview? How does that look? Oh, I think bhakti is perfect for the agnostic. (laughs) Uh, Say more about that. Why? Well, and this is interesting that you bring this up because a lot of people, modern people, you know, who are secular humanists or agnostics or from a a different religious background are a little bit put off by the apparently theistic presentation, uh, which of course it initially is. Krishna is the supreme God. But what happens after this section where Krishna has just presented yoga and said that, you know, that the highest yogi is one who sees me in all beings and all beings in me, and if you're a fundamentalist or a literalist or a, what we call a hard theist, then you have to look at somebody and you actually have to see a little figure of Krishna <laughs> in their heart. You know, the, the blue guy standing playing a flute with his peacock feather on And you're probably not going to see that unless you've been ingesting some very strange things. And so that's not what is actually meant. And so what happens then, and I think... This is something that is beautifully done in the Gita, is that Krishna starts to deconstruct the hard theistic view. And he does this, you know, if you're reading the Gita, this is like chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, you'll, you'll see this deconstruction in which that which is the Supreme God is not like the boss anymore because, you know, this functioning demigod, which is in Hindu mythology is Brahma, so every universe has a, a creator god named Brahma. Um, maybe even your personal universe um, does. And that's Brahma is merely a composition of the creative Shakti or the Prakriti. And so the true consciousness, the beloved, that which is the, the sweetheart in all beings, 
isn't really involved in playing God. Although if there is a God, then that's who's playing, but it's not important. And so Krishna begins to deconstruct your ideas of who Krishna is by saying, actually, uh, look around you, Arjuna. I'm the taste of the water. I'm the light of the sun. I'm the light of the moon. I am the sense of humor in comedians. All of these things which are, you know, immediate kind of everyday experiences. Krishna says, that's, that's Krishna. That's Krishna. And totally de-emphasizing the, the idea that uh, Krishna is, is the boss or is the emperor or is the dictator. And, you know, even though in theistic religions, that's a dominant view. You know, and so people, even though they're saying a lot of times their devotion is merely like you would have devotion to, say, a dictator, uh, like the people around a dictator, you know, are always fawning, they're sycophants, they're flattering the dictator who insists on flattery. And part of their minds are doing exactly the opposite. They're just hating this guy. And so if bhakti is based in that misinterpretation of the supreme being as being a, a separate self in the sense of an authority, a boss, uh, who could toss them into the fires of hell, you can't really have love <laughs> uh, like you do with, uh, you know, a, a new puppy or with uh, your kids or friends or something. And so Krishna starts to deconstruct that, the, that theism into this appreciation for all beings, all sentient beings, and a very deep love and appreciation for them. And he's saying, I am actually the intelligence in their heart. And so Krishna then is presenting Krishna not selfishly as I'm the you know I'm the guy you got to love but I am the beloved in all these beings and so if you're a Buddhist as a Buddhist you know you say well if there's a God God is empty of separate self you know that's the uh, the Buddhist teaching and so somehow you know whoever the poet of the Gita of the Gita is they somehow crafted it so that it slides seamlessly into the vision of Mahayana Buddhism, which is the second large school of Buddhism in which concern for others becomes the dominant theme. Also the view that, you know, Krishna is everywhere in everyone, that really neatly maps onto the idea of everyone as Buddha nature. It's sort of exactly basically the yeah. same teaching, right? It's the same teaching, and then, and so to someone who's deeply involved, say, in the mythology of Krishna or the mythology of Vishnu or Shiva, or it could be of any of the goddesses who are their kind of complements, it's the same. You know, the, the, the goddess, say. So there's also a Devi Gita, <laughs> which was composed you know, a couple of hundred years after the Bhagavad Gita, in which the Devi or the goddess is presenting the same teachings that Krishna presents. Quite clever. And if you have any, of course, you're with mythology, if you've kind of held on to the different characters as actual solid substance, when the myth is turned over, it's uh, quite confusing until finally you go, aha. <laughs> so it's, it's the goddess who is the supreme, and all of the gods are merely extensions of the goddess rather than in other myths, it's the god, and then all the goddesses are extensions of the god. So the Gita really opens this up, and it, so it opens up your view of, of not only of yoga as being, 
you know, the the true insight into this is what where the real yoga is. So all of the different types of yoga, you'll end up with this insight. And of course, you have to really want it and you have to really work at it. But that all of these different schools, not that every school is a good school, but the ones that have matured, who have actually interfaced with their environment and with other schools. <laughs> so schools of yoga, just like schools, or just like people have to interface because in order to grow, that they're all basically expressing the same thing, but in with a different language, maybe a different mythology. So it's a very inclusive thing. Krishna, one, one feeling I get as well, Richard, yeah. when I read it, and also when I hear you talk about it right there about bhakti yoga is, Krishna seems to be inviting us to consider what devotion or love might look like when it's not attached to an object, right? So what does it mean in general just to, and that's very hard for us to conceptualize, right? What do you mean? You love something. I love my wife or I love doing this activity. I'm devoted to a God. But I think this is actually, when you begin to deconstruct this, how it can be helpful and a more, we begin to understand how this works in terms of a more positive psychology point of view and how it can be applicable to people across different sort of belief systems. Because when you think about positive psychology, a lot of things we know about what makes people happier, let's say cultivating a sense of gratitude. And I've come to appreciate that there's something to be said for cultivating a feeling of devotion. I said this to Mary yesterday. It's, it's paradoxically, you know, I've come to sort of understand that sort of there's a reason to do puja or pray, even if you think that no one's listening. Well, so you're li you're listening. And then who are you? You know, to answer that question. And <laughs> it gets very interesting that way. Yeah, devotion is some. You know, we, we create a formula to understand it, and then we realize, oh, we're being metaphorical. And this is a hard thing in, I think, most levels of practice, is that there's this, the initial state, uh, and this is both for Hindus and, and Buddhists, too, is called shraddha. And shraddha means, it's usually translated as faith. And that doesn't mean you, you but faith more in the sense of trust, or the ability to be around a tradition or a teaching or just to be out in nature and to be able to not know and to be totally trusting or happy in that state of not knowing. Because the ego has to know because that way it can then start to manipulate so that it can profit from the situation or survive at least. And it's a very, the beginning state of bhakti, of shraddha or just trust it's something beginners can do. It's like, you know, I just intuitively, I know this is good. I know this is cool, um, but I can't explain it. Um, and then from that, you know, then you, I think the next in the sequence is virya. This is, and that's courage in order to act. And this you're doing in, you know, all different types of practices. And then once you do that, you then can practice, you start your meditative practices in which you start to see how silly your own mind is. You know, you're concentrating on something, concentrating. And then you start to see the, the, the mind is creating, you know, almost a game to make it concentrate. But everything that I'm is important and nothing else is important. And then 
eventually you start to, you know, there's a, a point of what they call dhyana, or lack, which is meditation. You relax and you start to see, well, everything I'm not concentrating on is interfacing with what I am concentrating on, what I am paying attention to. And this can be in terms of anything you're concentrating on if you do it with a sense of devotion in which you're not doing it out of desperate uh, desire, greed, anger, uh, lust, or those things. Even it could be like having to do your bookkeeping so you can pay your taxes, <laughs> which requires concentration. Uh, but you need not suffer too much when you do that. If you, you start to appreciate the deeper, broader context of at least when this is done, then you can get back to something else at worst. And so the devotion then, it leads into, you know, you're experiencing your beloved. So let's say you're, you're either internally meditating on what they call the chitra nadi, which is the brilliant, beautiful nadi inside of the central channel, starting at the middle of your heart and going up. And it's called, in traditional yoga scripture, they call it, this is my beloved. And so when you, like, feel great love for somebody or, you know, you, or something or some animal or creature, it's, you feel it there. It's like, oh, there's my sweetheart. <laughs> there's my sweetie pie is right there. But the sweetie pie, if you think it isn't actually the body of my beloved, uh, because the body gets sick, it gets old, it dies. It's always changing. So what is my beloved? <laughs> and in the mythology of Krishna, which is interesting, the you know, there are many beloveds of Krishna and those who hold Krishna as their beloved, like the the cowherd girls of Vrindavan, the gopis. And they don't appreciate the fact that Krishna has this job as being the supreme godhead that is of no interest to them because he's their sweetie. And when they do manage to be with him, to give him a hug, or they both Krishna disappears into them, they disappear into Krishna, both into a state of not knowing, into the present moment. So neither is God, or both are God. But what do you mean by that word? And so that, that word, bhakti, sort of pushes the importance or the, the uh, threat of the word God or self to the side, because you start to see what's really meant by that word. And it's a much more um, functional and much happier situation than anything you could have imagined. You know, listening to your language, you're talking about bhakti as associated with that sort of sweetness. And it really reminds me of what I've been doing the last two weeks, uh, which was traveling around Tamil Nadu with Douglas Brooks and a group of his students going to all these Shaivite tantric temples and Shakta temples, which was absolutely fabulous. And our guide, who is a, a wonderful guy, a local Tamil guy, he would, I, I noticed he would often talk about these temples in a really positive way. He's like, we're going to go to this lovely temple. It's a very, very sweet temple. And as I sort of listened to his language and as I, as I got to know some of the local people better and just observe mm. like, you know, how people operated in kind of daily interactions and Douglas explaining things about the culture, I realized that sweetness is such an important quality of their culture. Mm. And I can sort of see how bhakti seems to be about cultivating this sort of sense of sweetness. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, it's 
Yeah, they call it the different rasas or flavors. And these are metaphors for different aesthetic, deep aesthetic experiences that are actually different types of samadhi. And sweet is always, you know, that's why, you know, it's like, you know, I don't eat a lot of sugar. You know, I have at different points when I've lived in India, which, <laughs> but I'll still... Tough to avoid. It's tough to avoid. Yeah. It's a cultural thing. <laughs> but still, if, if you know, like, uh, if you love somebody, you still call them sweetie pie, even though, you know, you realize that too much sugar is probably not healthy. It's still their sweet, because uh, it makes you smile in a certain way, if it's a good quality sweet. And if you f- have that sense of sweetness, that rasa... When you hear about, oh, should I become, maybe I should accept this liberation or I should go pass on to Buddhahood now, it's not really of any interest to you. You just want to stay with the sweetness of of serving others. And so it's quite a good vision. And it, it really untangles a lot of the sectarianism, competitiveness, extreme asceticism, uh, pain that any different, any school, of yoga or mysticism will potentially show. And of course, ironically, you know, you'll find different bhakti schools where they take themselves too seriously (laughs) and they're not sweet at all. (laughs) You know, they're quite jealous of each other. They're very competitive. And so any formula we make, then it requires, you know, that actual, you actually have to do it and look deeply into it. I think the vision of the Gita is one it just uh, develops the concept of bhakti in a way that tends to show how universal it is. It's not something that belongs only to, you know, this particular few lineages in India, but it's universal to, you know, all, it's going to be on all these different planets as well. You know, I was not only all over the earth, but any other planets where there's uh, sentience. Uh, bhakti is the internal nature one thing you just talked about was you discuss how bhakti the sense of sweetness is really uh, an invitation to re-engage with the world rather than going off into buddhahood or some higher state of enlightenment and i i'm glad you said that mm-hmm. because i wanted yeah. to bring this up with you is a a really important part of the gita from what i've read is it's very much this was one scholar's critique anyways, and of course I took, was that it's it's offering a critique of the dominant schools of religious thought in India at the time, which tend to be very renunciate, you know, things like Buddhism, Jainism, and the Gita is really about how to find liberation or how to find fulfillment within the householder path, you know, like not being a monk, but living a sort of regular life in the world, which would also explain how it sort of connects to Mahayana Buddhism. But I was wondering if you could talk about that because so much of the yoga that we practice in the West often derives unknowingly to most of the practitioners from renunciate traditions. (laughs) But but yet most of us are living a householder Mm -hmm. path with jobs and families and responsibilities. So I was wondering kind of what you think the Gita can teach us about how to practice yoga in a householder path, not a renunciate mm. way. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. Yeah, the Gita, I'll hit on your different points here. Yeah, the Gita, in some sense, is a reaction to the 
kind of the dominance of monastic culture, in which it's believed that you have to basically go away from the world, because the world is such a confusing place, and it's full of so many temptations that you have to get yourself to a monastery, or at least to the forest. But rather, the, the Gita is saying that those it is good at certain points to renounce the world. You know, like, that's an individual thing. So they call that sannyas, in which you basically, you know, just before the time of death, you put the whole thing down. You say, yeah, I'm renouncing it. Which doesn't mean you become unfriendly to people. It just means that you're more or less retiring from normal society. But the the fact that one can engage with people, uh, have, you know, a job, uh, can actually tend to a lot of the, the smaller day-to-day things that survival requires is also very sacred. Uh, and the Gita makes that clear. One thing, because I, I was a monastic uh, in India for a while, is if you're not doing the cooking, someone else is still cooking for you. You know, And if you're a beggar, say you're going to make your, and you're going to go to some householder's house, they're cooking, and then they'll fill your begging bowl with, you know, like a, a portion of the lunch they made. So I think for, and historically, you know, this this can be, it can create a very lopsided society. And so the Gita really is a, a balance to that. And still I have a great appreciation for, you know, the monastic culture in that it gives the correct individuals uh, time to really go into their practice deeply. But I think, you know, historically there's had to be a balance presented. And so then, it's interesting within the, the lineage of Krishnamacharya, of then uh, Vatabi Joyce and Iyengar and Deshikachar and uh, many others, is that they're householders. And, uh, you know, also they were also high caste Brahmins, but that's another discussion. But uh, the idea was that if you could do the yoga as a householder, then you were a true renunciate, because there you were surrounded by the complexities of life, you know, the economic necessities, you know, the presence of, of you know, spouse, of children. And yet, if you were able to uh, fulfill those duties without a sense of attachment, which doesn't mean detachment in a I don't care sense, but it means I'm actually seeing these beings with, with love or seeing them truly, uh, that that is a much more fulfilling path and a much more and for many people, more beneficial path. And then at a certain point, you know, even if you have become enlightened through, the, you know, and have fulfilled your duties, you'll still get very old and die. And so <laughs> there's still a space for the, the path of the complete renunciate who goes to the forest. But I think that the Gita is very good at that. And there are a number of uh, similar texts, you know, in Indian mythology in which renunciates have, uh, oh, there's a brilliant book called the Yoga Vasishta, which is another immensely long book, <laughs> and it's just, and it was actually written in Kashmir in the about the 11th or 12th century, but it's stories within stories within stories, to the point of being very uh, humorous, and it's taught by the sage Vasishta, who is the guru of Rama, and many of them are stories of kings who renounce the world and then their 
wives who happen to be goddesses are fully enlightened and they go out to the forest and they trap their renunciate husbands into enlightenment and the husband comes back and serves them as a enlightened king and the whole kingdom flourishes and so that point uh, that the the world itself is actually a wonderful place if we can only you know clear our vision and that uh, it is totally worthwhile to uh, try to be of good service to everyone and that's another beautiful you know emphasis i think in the gita and in the bhakti schools the tantric schools you don't have to be so grumpy <laughs> you don't have to hate the world yeah what there seems to be one thing i notice among people a common theme among sort of sages or a lot of these yogic adepts is there's a quality of playfulness and lightheartedness that goes along with many of them. There are exceptions. I mean, Krishnamurti, certainly a brilliant guy. I'm a big fan of his as well. He was a very serious individual. But I think for a lot of people, that tends to be true. You hear that, whether it's Zen monks or a lot of these yogas. I think of like Neem Karoli Baba is a perfect example of that. And we often take ourselves so seriously in our culture. It's one thing that I really noticed from living abroad is I was like, wow, Americans take themselves really seriously. And I take myself too seriously. <laughs> so I, I, I've been working on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can laugh a little bit. <laughs> yeah, most most teachers that, you know, you really connect with, they, if not, a, it might be hidden, but they have a good sense of humor, because the whole thing is rather funny. And it's, you know, even though the everyone dies, and it is all impermanent, the fact that the entire thing is impermanent is kind of funny and maybe that doesn't sound funny though it's a, <laughs> but if you look at humor as when the mind starts to see that there's no absolute one way to look at any phenomenon but that the mind doesn't know which game or to play with a particular word or particular situation then the mind kind of stops and so and this is what happens in meditation practice or in in the Zen tradition and koan practice, you know, you'll, you'll come to a point where you're following a particular kind of mythology in your mind, like a mind game. And all of a sudden, due to some other being interfering or your innate intelligence or humor coming out, you start to see it in a completely different way. You know, the same word with a different meaning. And you make the sound, ha, 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 which means funny. <laughs> <laughs> and and so there's this very deep connection uh, traditionally between humor and bhakti and humor and you know this realization in yoga, and that that's why it's good if if people I think uh, communicate <laughs> because if you won't talk to somebody you can't joke with them. Well, I've heard you say before that yoga is relationship in many ways, whether it's, you know, breath to the body and asana practice, but also, you know, relationship in our life off the yoga mat. And so communication is, is really at the heart of that. I'm mindful of your time, but I want to ask you a question, a parting question, and it, it will seem like I'm dropping a huge bomb on you at the end, which you could easily answer for an hour, but take it as an invitation to to summarize it, to just leave some of our listeners with maybe a, some big ideas, because I've been talking earlier in the conversation about how we sort of expand people's understanding of yoga 
beyond asana. And you've given us this wonderful exposition of the Gita and all of its lessons. So can I ask, according to you, how would you like people to define what yoga is? Um, in other words, sort of like knowing what people's misconceptions about yoga is sort of what would you like them to know? Yeah. Oh, well, the yoga is more the awakening of compassion and intelligence and the true sense of humor. So it is uh, other ways of saying that is it's really finding your true nature and the true nature of all other beings, the true nature of the world as love. And physical yoga in which, or hatha yoga, in which we learn to control the prana or the subtle patterns of sensation that compose the body and meditate and have insight, it's very helpful to bring you back into the sense of groundedness, to the sense of the immediate uh, beauty and divinity of sensation itself or of pure life or prana itself. And that's what these practices are for. And if you know what they're for, then you'll be much more intelligent in how you apply them. <laughs> and it'll spread into you know all the different aspects of your life. If the yoga isn't taught well or isn't presented, if it's not presented in proper context, uh, it then becomes an escape or the, the hope for an escape. And it becomes just another religion eager to fight with other religions. And so it's better without right. it in those cases. I would just encourage people to, you know, really inquire. And this is considered the, the real key to yoga is ask questions in one, an academic way, like, what does this mean? And how do you know this? How do I know that? And just, and whenever answers come, when there are lots of answers, you keep questioning. You look deeper around the answer, through the answer, until just that, that intelligence of just pure looking is very bright. And that's what we need. <laughs> Beautiful place at which to end. Richard, thank you so much for your time. I want to give you a chance to tell people about any upcoming workshops or events or online courses, any offerings you have. Oh, well, you can check. Uh, we have a website, uh, which is richardfreemanyoga.com. And that has lists of when we get around to posting them, <laughs> of different retreats and uh, classes that we do all over the place. And so, you know, please uh, come from all over and it'll be fun. We also have a Facebook page, and I never do Facebook, but I've actually, <laughs> someone with the website I've been told, and the address is really simple. It's simply at uh, Richard Freeman Yoga. That's all one word, lowercase. And that's how you access the Facebook page. Excellent. And I know we've got some listeners in, in Austin. You've got a workshop coming up there soon, in a few weeks, don't you? That's coming up in Austin. Yeah. Yes. That's uh, the middle of uh, February in Austin. And it's four days. And or th it's three days long. Anyway, we'd love to see anyone there. And I think it's going to be a relatively small group. So if you have questions... We can happily discuss whatever it is. Well, a relatively small group at one of your workshops is a rare thing. So if you're in Austin, I would jump on that opportunity. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. Richard, so much. That'd be fun. Well, thank you, Adrian. It's a good service you're doing, getting people to inquire. And to thank you. 
so much. It means a lot coming from you. I really appreciate your kind words and your time. Oh, you're welcome. So be in touch. Absolutely. Talk soon, Richard. Take care. Bye-bye. For those of us who are still listening, thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Richard. And I would strongly encourage people who are yoga practitioners and are potentially interested in studying with Richard to check out his website and look at the workshops and events and retreats that Mary and Richard are offering in the near future. Or for those people who are uh, are looking to start up a yoga practice, I can say that I was practicing yoga for about, let's see, six years before I came across Richard and Mary and studying with them in the past two years has changed my practice and changed my life so much in so many beneficial ways. So I would strongly encourage anyone who's interested to study with them in person for sure. And also for those of you who don't live nearby, they have some really great courses online. I know at least one, which I'm taking currently is uh, Richard has a pranayama course for those who are interested in the practice of pranayama and uh, breathing exercises, which as I discussed in my first podcast with Adrian Cox, I think Adrian said it really well, pranayama really is the gateway to deeper states of consciousness. And so that course with Richard online through soundstrue.com really is a wonderful opportunity to learn pranayama in more depth. So thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear from you and share your thoughts, please, on our conversations, questions that things that you liked about the conversation, maybe constructive criticism, suggestions for guests in the future, suggestions for topics that the show could cover, or just, you know, hear from people in terms of what they're enjoying about the show or what they'd like to change. So you can start that conversation. The best two ways I always say are Twitter and Facebook. The handle is at Hacking the Self on Twitter. Same thing for the Facebook page, Hacking the Self. Also, if you prefer to email, you can email me at hackingtheself at gmail.com. So thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.